As he was reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Father, we are grateful that this story has been preserved all these years. That this story has been proclaimed all of these years throughout the entire world. So that we here in 2017 could read this story and hear this story and benefit from this story. As the body of Christ has for thousands of years. And so come Lord Jesus and teach us. Instruct us today. Do this work that you've always done in your people through this example of love and worship. Accomplish today in us and through us whatever you decide for your glory. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. For those who have been paying attention, then you noticed that last Sunday we were in Mark chapter 11, and today we were in Mark 14, and you may be wondering why we're doing that. And uh, we shared with you before that our focus uh, leading up into Easter is to spend as much time as we can focused on this week of passion, the suffering of Christ on our behalf. So essentially we took the resurrection account in Mark 16 on Easter Sunday and just backed up as far as we could uh, to cover as much as we could uh, leading up into Easter, which means we'll basically spend Mark uh, this time between now and Easter on Mark 14, 15, and 16. And then after Easter we'll go back and hit the rest of Mark 11, 12, and 13. But we wanted to uh, examine closely this, this week of Jesus pouring out himself for us. Last week we looked at the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which has traditionally been celebrated as part of the Passion Week of Christ. Although, as we looked at last week, it's not 100% certain that all those events happened in one week. They definitely happened, but it could have been over about, and probably was over about a four to six, week, uh, four to six month period before his crucifixion. Not just one week. But when we come to Mark 14, we for sure are in the final week of Jesus' ministry because Mark gives us this time clue there in verse 1 of chapter 14. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a religious event that were celebrated by the Jews each spring in the month of Nisan that had an origin story that goes back 1,300, 1,500 years before the time of Christ. If you have read the book of Exodus, if you have seen the Ten Commandments or the Prince of Egypt or more recently the Exodus movie, then you might have some idea of what that story is about. Uh, God desired to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. They had been slaves in Egypt for about 400 years. God's people by the end of the book of Genesis was basically Jacob and his 12 sons and their families. A famine was coming in the land and God had ordained that Egypt would have food through Joseph, who was second in charge to the the Pharaoh of Egypt. 
And so Jacob and all the sons moved to Egypt so they'd have food, they'd survive the famine. And while they were in Egypt, they grew into millions of people, uh, a large people over 400 years, and they were enslaved by the Egyptians because the Egyptians were afraid of them, that they would revolt and take over the country. So by the time you get to Exodus, they're calling out for deliverance. We need a deliverer. We need someone to set us free. So God sends Moses and his brother Aaron to be this deliverer, to go to Pharaoh and say, let our people go. Well, the Israelites had no army. They had no weaponry. They had no method to just force the Egyptian Pharaoh to let them go. So how are they going to get uh, themselves free from slavery in Egypt? Well, God's going to do it. Pharaoh's not an idiot. He's not going to let his people go or, or the slave labor go on his own. So God ensues to send plagues of supernatural origin, not only to paint a clear picture in the mind of Pharaoh and the Israelites who's fighting for them. This is not you freeing yourself. This is God supernaturally freeing you, but also to clearly paint a picture in the minds of the Egyptians and the Israelites that the Most High God, the one true God, is the highest God above all the other gods that you worship, Egyptians. So each one of the plagues was intended to send us a very specific message. The water of the Nile turns to blood, despite the power of Hapi, the Egyptian god of the Nile. The sun goes dark for three days, despite the power of Ra, the sun god. Uh, the Egyptians are infested with painful boils and sores, despite Isis, the Egyptian god of medicine and peace. And on and on you could go through all the plagues. God is declaring himself as the most high god, the one true god over all man-created gods. The final plague would be the plague to end all plagues. When the Lord would pass through the land and the firstborn of the Egyptians would die. God being sovereign over all life, all people, has the right and ability to do that. Now the Israelites would be saved, if you know the story, by taking a spotless lamb, bringing the lamb into their home, getting intimate with the lamb, they're close to the lamb, they know the lamb, it becomes almost like a pet and then at a certain period of time that they would slaughter the lamb. They would take the blood of the lamb and paste it over their doorframe around their home. And for all the families whose homes were covered in the blood of the lamb, the Lord would pass over their home and continue on to the next home. You can read in Exodus 12 this entire story. And yes, it, it was that intentional and in pointing to Christ, this spotless lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world by shedding his blood. Now once this plague brought destruction upon the Egyptians, Pharaoh wanted them to leave Egypt and leave fast. So the Lord instructed them how to prepare a meal with unleavened bread because they didn't have time for the bread to rise. They would eat it flat, they would eat it fast, and they would leave Egypt quickly. So by the time of Jesus, this festival, this feast had been carried out year after year after year as per the instructions of the Lord to his people so that when they celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they would remember how God delivered them from the Egyptians, how God delivered them out of Egypt. And they had been keeping it faithfully for thousands of years so that in this year on this week, Christ would come to shed his blood, to pour out his own blood the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world for His people. Now things had to happen for Jesus to end up on the cross as a criminal, considering that He had never broken a law. And part of what had to happen was something that had been brewing since Mark chapter 3. The religious leaders in their jealousy began to plot for a way to take Him and kill Him. 
And so you see this begin to take shape in these opening two verses. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now, this is uh, uh, not a huge, suspenseful part of the story. No, no one knows what's going to happen. You, you probably know the story. In fact, just look down a few verses later, verses 10 through 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, we'll look at this in a couple of weeks. But they basically got one of Jesus' inner circle, Judas, who was ordained by God that he would play this role. Judas would betray Jesus. He would, they would tell the chief priest, here's a time and a place when you can grab him, and the people won't raise an uproar, and the Romans won't get, uh, grab your, your attention and do something about it. Uh, it's a time and a place where you can grab him and take him by force. And then do what you want to with him. Now, this part of the story, this cunning, this conniving, this betrayal, this very sick and despicable part of the story, Mark is placing to to contrast that with this beautiful part of the story that we're going to spend our time looking at this morning. This sick, despicable part of the life and ministry of Jesus. A man who through all the Gospels is serving and sacrificing and loving, having compassion, healing, teaching, caring, doing everything good and right and perfect, bringing the kingdom of God to the earth, and it is, it is beautiful. It was an incredible taste of this eternal state that is to come, where there will be no sickness or sorrow or suffering or pain or hurt. And it was uh, experienced by the Jew and the non-Jew, who were who, during Jesus' three years of ministry in this region of the world were incredibly blessed by the presence of God in the flesh. Demons cast out, the dead were raised, the sick restored. Some scholars believe there were regions in this part of the world that for these three years hardly had any sick people. Now, sickness is not as big a deal to us today because we go to the store and buy medicines and we feel better. Uh, we either uh, kill it with antibacterial, uh, antibiotics or we uh, lessen the symptoms until our body... Uh, conquers the virus on, on its own, the way God's created our bodies to do that. But back then, they didn't have all that. Not in the same way. So sickness was a big deal. For a region to not have sickness, to be cured of sickness for a three-year period of time was an amazing coming of the kingdom of God to the earth. And it was beautiful. Like There, there may have been areas where, where people didn't die. I mean, we, we have a small glimpse of Jesus' ministry in life. John tells us in, in the Gospel of John that not everything was recorded that Jesus said or did. If it were, the, the world would not be able to contain the books that it held. So we, we don't know everything Jesus did. But just the, the taste that we have in the four Gospels, which is a lot, he did a lot. And so this coming of the kingdom of God, this blessing, this shalom of the kingdom of God, the peace of God rested on this region for three years in incredible ways. He did everything that was good, right, and perfect. And at the end, the religious leaders don't like him because they can't control him. They're not a part of what he's doing. In fact, he's coming against them for their hypocrisy. And so they set about a plan to kill him, seize him, and kill him. So their despicableness is intentionally set by Mark in contrast to the actions of this woman in verses 3 through 9. This is... Mark's favorite storytelling technique is called sandwiching, where you take two similar stories and you sandwich it around a third story, and the third story is kind of the meat of the sandwich, and it's really the focus that Mark wants us to see. 
and give. And the focus is this beautiful picture of love and worship of this woman in contrast to their wickedness. So we'll spend more time later on their evil plot, but, but this morning her act in love of worship is so beautiful it should occupy the rest of our time. Now Mark tells us in verse 3 that Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. As we looked at last week, Bethany was a small village about two miles across the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem, which two miles across the mountain, you're looking at 30, 45 minute good walk. So like, think of Ruston. We, Ruston is a 30 minute drive. For Jesus, Bethany and Jerusalem was about a 30 to 45 minute walk for him. And he was in the house of Simon the leper, believed uh, that this home was the home base of Jesus during this last four to six month stretch before his crucifixion and resurrection. He would travel back and forth to Jerusalem, teach daily in the temple area, and then at night he'd go back to Bethany and stay in the home of this person, Simon the leper. Well, who is Simon the leper? Well, all four gospel writers have this story, and so we learn from the other three gospels details that Mark doesn't include. Mark has his reasons inspired by the Spirit of God. But in John 12, we learn that the woman who uh, gave this sacrificial gift of anointing Jesus with this ointment, the woman was Mary, the sister of Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead in John chapter 11. So if, if that's true, then Simon the leper was a family member of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, possibly the father, maybe a brother, maybe somebody else. But this is an incredible, important family in the life and ministry of Jesus. Like, can you imagine sitting around this table hearing the stories of how Jesus had impacted their life? Mary and Martha had been close to Jesus for much of his ministry. They received him into their home, going all the way back to Luke chapter 10. Jesus, of course, raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. And then this dad, this family member, brother, Simon the leper. Now, they didn't call him a leper because he still had leprosy. Otherwise, he couldn't be around them. He had to be ostracized and put away. But they called him the leper because he had been a leper who Jesus obviously healed, and his healing was so incredible, miraculous, that his former condition became part of his name. You know, there's Simon. You know, he was the one who had leprosy that has now been healed of leprosy. He's no longer the leper. Maybe it should have been Simon who used to be the leper, but that's just a lot of extra words. So when you consider how much Jesus had personally interacted with and engaged and helped this family, then maybe the next scene isn't so surprising. In verse 3, As he was reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Jesus sitting there, all of a sudden had a woman approaching from behind. He hears this ceramic-type jar crack, alabaster-type jar crack open. And all of a sudden, this oil begins to pour down his head. And when you break a jar like this, according to people who know jars that existed back then, you, you don't reuse the jar. It's not a screw top. You can put stuff in it later on and reuse it. It's, it's broken. It never will be reused again. The oil was made from the nard plant of India, and has the same exact name, and Mark says it's very expensive. Because of the nature of the alabaster jar, the nature of the oil, considering what these people made for their daily income, which wasn't much, this is more than likely some kind of family heirloom that had been passed down for years and years and years, and was expected to be passed down for years and years and years. 
And here in this one act of love, grace, and worship, the jar is cracked and the oil is poured. And the reaction is immediate. Verse 4. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. Complete, total scorn and ridicule. The word for how they viewed her was very, very harshly. Like literally their nostrils flared. Like I don't know how much scorn and ridicule you have to have for your nostrils to flare, but I would assume a lot. Do you ever even notice that your nostrils flare? Mine are flaring right now, just talking about nostrils flaring. Now, let's be fair. Mark says it was only some of the disciples. Like, I, I tend when you hear this story, they're just all sitting around pointing fingers at her. What's wrong with her? But Mark says it's some of the disciples. John is more specific. John says in John 12, it was actually Judas who said this. Because Judas, John tells us, was in charge of the money bags, and he had other plans for the money, not what this woman had planned. Whoever it was, however many it was, it was incredibly harsh. And what made it worse, it was masked in this veil of religiousness. Don't do this. We should sell this money and give it to the poor. The gift was incredibly valued. Essentially, one denarii was one day's wage. 300 denarii, 300 days wages. It's essentially one year's salary. And you don't have to be in any income level, in any part of the world, in any culture to understand how much money that is. One year's salary is an incredible amount of money for anybody. And even if you don't have the scorn of the disciples, maybe there's still a part of you that says, was that really necessary? It's a lot of money. Like, let's not get so full of ourselves that we can't admit that there's uh, hasn't been a time in our life that we've looked at the gift of someone else that they've offered to Jesus in worship or service and we haven't scoffed or scorned in some kind of way. Maybe, maybe for high-minded reasons, like we could think of a better way to use money or our resources like that. Maybe for selfish and jealous reasons because they gave a better gift. They thought of it before you thought of it. Or they can do it better than you can do it. So in your heart, you kind of ridicule and scorn and look at them. Look at what they're doing. But that's not all the reaction. That's not at all the reaction of Jesus, who, by the way, is God in the flesh and knows the heart, thoughts, and motivations of people. Verse 6, Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. Back off, boys. She has done something beautiful. Now, usually this word that Jesus used that's translated as beautiful is also translated as good. She has done something good and beautiful. And then Jesus gives this strange contrast. You'll always have the poor with you. You won't always have me. A couple of things. Jesus in no way is demeaning or dismissing ministry to the poor. We know that he came to preach the gospel to the poor. His entire ministry was spent with poor people, mostly. 
And people who are followers of Jesus over the last 2,000 years have done more to care for the poor than anyone else. The heart of Jesus for the poor is without question demonstrated in the Bible. It's not even debatable. And that's not the point of the passage, that Jesus is somehow dismissing taking care of the poor. He was defending her because they were demeaning her gift. And he was saying something about himself that only he could say about himself because only he is God. Like, we couldn't say this about ourselves. Jesus could because he's Jesus. He is God and the only, only the worship of the one true God can be elevated over ministering to the poor at any point in time. Now, usually you can do both of those things. You worship Jesus, you take care of the poor. They all go hand in hand. In fact, worshiping God, worshiping Jesus should lead naturally to caring for the poor because it's the heart of God. Compassion on the poor, compassion on the the broken and the hurting and the disadvantaged. But if they are ever opposed to each other, if you ever have to choose, you worship Jesus. Even more than taking care of the poor and the needs of the poor. That always comes first. Like there is a way to minister to the poor that is not worship of Jesus. This is the fault of some of the social gospel movements that have appeared, especially over the last hundred years, where people or or churches or ministries will care for the poor. You feed them, you clothe them, you take care of their physical needs, while you never get to the heart of their deepest needs, their need of the gospel. And churches have done that for a long time. They've, They've taken the gospel, they've watered it down to where it's almost meaningless, or they don't even share it, but they help people be more comfortable, be more warm and well fed, All the while, their soul is calling out for a Savior, and they never offer the Savior. They're just offering their good works, which become a functional Savior for them. It would be like someone dying who needs a simple antibiotic to kill the infection, and you feed them, you clothe them, you give them a warm place to lay down, but you never give them the shot to kill the disease that's killing them. That's how you can minister to the poor without worshiping and loving Jesus. Jesus came to do both, and we should be able to do both, but if you ever have to choose, you worship him. By the standards of the disciples who are scoffing at her, she's done a careless, wasteful thing. I mean, maybe, let's give them the benefit of the doubt, maybe they really did care about the poor. Maybe they're not just using that to criticize her. Or, the picture John paints in John's gospel, if it was just Judas criticizing her, John, Judas, for sure didn't care about the poor. John tells us he doesn't. He just cares about the money bags and being in control of the money. Jesus and his standards, knowing her heart, knowing her motivation, he calls her gift beautiful and good. She has done what she could do, Jesus says. An earlier story in Mark's gospel we'll come back to. Jesus praises the widow and her gift of two copper coins, which equal a penny in Mark 12, 44, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So think about this gift of hers to Jesus. It's costly, it's sacrificial. She cannot give this gift again. It's a one-time deal. There might not be a greater gift that she could give. This is all she could do, Jesus said. She did this publicly. She did this unashamedly. Like, there is a place and it's necessary for there to be secretive giving. 
So if you, if you go to Matthew 6, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talks about secrety giving, that you give so your, your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. And, but, but that was said in, in contrast to the hypocritical giving of the Pharisees and religious leaders who would walk along the streets that would literally blow a trumpet. Everybody look at me. I'm putting this much money in the offering plate. Like literally they would do that. And Jesus says, that's ridiculous. Right? That's ridiculous. You don't give drawing that kind of attention to yourself. You give with your right hand so that even your left hand doesn't know what you're doing. There's a place for that. We practice that. We want to practice that well. This humble, not drawing attention to yourself, secret of giving. But there is a worship and giving to Jesus that is public and unashamed for all to see. Like you being here today. Right? You going to work and letting it be known that you're a follower of Christ. In your neighborhood, it is known that you are a follower of Christ. You can't hide your walk with Jesus. You live it out so that all can see. In the face of possible or actual scorn and criticism. Sometimes by people who actually, like in this case, they know you. They know you well. And they're ridiculing you. And in the face of that, we give. We worship. Not just paying the financial price it requires, but the emotional price and possible humiliation. Like we can't live lives simply making choices to avoid attention. At some point, our lives are going to be public to someone and we unashamedly identify with Jesus. We unashamedly worship Jesus. This gift, this worship was motivated rightly as confirmed by Jesus. So this was the problem of those ridiculing her. She was being wasteful and unwise. This is unnecessary. They did not assume the best about her motivation. They assumed the worst. She's either so incompetent that she can't calculate in her mind how much money this is worth and how much better it would be to use that money to help the poor, or she's so ignorant or such an idiot that she didn't even think about it. And Jesus shuts them up. Leave her alone. Period. Because I know why she's doing what she's doing. Like we hear this story and, and, and we're probably all on the same page. Like I want to be with that woman. I want to be in her camp. I don't want to be with the, the scorners, the religious people over there ridiculing her for this gift. I want to live like she lived and do what she did. I want to give and identify with Jesus like this. But my practical, sensible personality begins to put up these walls and barriers. But let, let's not get carried away, Jared. That's, that was crazy. A year's salary, come on. So let's think about that. Are there safe boundaries to this kind of giving? Can you give too much? Can you worship Jesus and love Jesus too wholeheartedly? So we've already seen in Mark this call to follow Jesus that requires us to leave behind family, friends, even be willing to give up homes and material possessions. To leave behind a desire for personal comfort or personal wealth accumulation. Mark 8, 34-38, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, 
of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So we deny our desire for personal comfort, our desire even to save our lives. We are willing to give even our life to follow Christ. A few chapters later, Mark 10, Peter said to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. When we are called by Jesus to follow him, Everything we are, everything we have, every relationship goes on the table. as something that we are willing to sacrifice and give up to follow Him. In fact, in a way, we do give them up because all that we are and all that we have are available to be used by Jesus to spread the gospel. Even if we don't have to sacrifice it, literally give it up, It's his. He owns it. It's available to him. So so, so as far as what may be required of us to give, we are required to give everything. There's no gift too great. There's no sacrifice too great. There's nothing that we can hold on to and say, okay, this is mine. Jesus, you can have everything else, but, but this is mine. Come on. Right? This is really special to me. Nothing. Everything is available, no matter the amount, no matter if it is everything. There are no boundaries, even if it means we give up our lives, because it's already His. The only prohibition we have on what we give to love and worship Jesus is the motivation of our heart. If the motivation of our giving and worshiping Jesus is not out of love, then our gift and our giving may be in vain. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, beginning of verse 1, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. You can use your gifts. They can be the most amazing gifts. You can understand everything there is to understand. You can have spiritual abilities and powers that no one has ever had. You can even give everything you have away for the good of others. You can give your life away to be burned. But if it's not motivated by love, Paul says, the words of Christ say, it amounts to nothing. Nothing. No matter how good it looks, no matter how much it costs you, it's nothing. The most costly and sacrificial giving, not motivated by love, amount to nothing in the eyes of Christ, is not received. In fact, it's not just love for Christ that has to flavor how we give and worship Him. Our love for each other has to flavor and motivate our giving and worship of Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, So if you're offering your gift to the altar and they remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. 
So it's not just love of Jesus that has to motivate our love and worship of Him. It's love of each other. Your worship of Jesus is connected to your relationships with each other so much so that your worship of Jesus can be hindered until you have pursued reconciliation with your brother or sister in Christ. Like maybe some of you in this room today, you don't need to come share in this communion meal. You don't need to give an offering or sing songs in a few minutes until you go have a conversation with somebody. That needs to be the first thing you do. Because you're harboring something and holding on to something against someone and there's a hindrance in this relationship. And your lack of love for this person to pursue them in reconciliation is hindering your love of Jesus. So what we give can be anything and everything. Paul said in Romans 12.1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. But what we give and how we give has to be motivated by love for Jesus and cannot be hindered because of a lack of love for each other. And so let me ask, what, what does this kind of love and worship of Jesus look like in your life? What does breaking open a bottle of perfume and pouring it over Jesus in his head look like for you? Like only you can answer that. I can't tell you what that needs to look like in your marriage, in your parenting, in your work, in your school, in your neighborhood, in your family. And I would caution you not to only think of of gifts and worship that have monetary value. This is so much more than that. I would caution you not to think of this as a one-time act. Like this is a one-time thing this lady could do, but it's more than just a one-time thing. It's continual, daily, constantly. What does your life look like poured out sacrificially, unashamedly, publicly in love and devotion to King Jesus? What does your life look like poured out sacrificially, unashamedly, publicly in love and devotion to King Jesus? Where are you tempted to measure your love for Jesus? He he didn't measure his love for us. We'll get to that in a second. He he didn't say, I'm going to give him this, but not that. He, He gave everything. For us. And in response, where are you tempted to say, well, I'll give you that much? Where are you tempted to hide your love for Jesus? Because you don't want it to be known to certain people. Where are you tempted to quiet your love for Jesus when scorn and ridicule appear? How are you tempted to hold back parts of your life convincing yourself, this is mine. This does not belong to him. No one can answer those questions for you. Only you know your heart. Like we can help by asking questions. We have DNA and missional community gatherings and we can, we, can, we can examine this and explore this. But man, you can deceive everybody. Only you and God know if he truly has all of you. And I hope and pray, considering that, that, that 
that you would consider that that in some way you you when you realize what this call is and what this 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 picture is that you come to the end of yourself and and you say to yourself I I can't do that I can't go there I can't love that extravagantly that outrageously that generously like this is too much I can't do this enough or consistently or unashamedly enough or sacrificially enough I can't pay that much of a price and if you are in that place or if you want to go there good because it's only when you admit you can't love Jesus like that that you're in the place for Jesus to help you love him like that so see what makes this kind of love and worship possible because in our own ability and strength we can't do this we're just going to quit we're too afraid we got too much guilt too much brokenness in our past we don't think we're good enough we're going to hide but if we see the gospel, if we see what Jesus has done, that he can give us life and he can call us out of our fear and our shame and our guilt. So look at verse 8. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This will be the last time in the gospel of Mark that Jesus uses the word gospel. And just like the first time, he said this in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, where he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. He uses the word gospel in the context of proclamation. This woman, her act of love, her worship, her devotion would be proclaimed wherever the gospel is proclaimed. And here we are, 2,000 years later, in Monroe, Louisiana, which no one except God knew would exist when this happened 2,000 years ago, proclaiming the works of this, this lady, talking about her again, just like believers all over the world have done for 2,000 years and are doing still to this day. She gives this gift that wasn't just a gift of love and adoration for how amazing Jesus is. Like we know she knew he was amazing. She gives a gift that was flavored by the aspect of his gospel that his followers were slowest to recognize. They saw his powers. They saw his miracles. They saw his teaching. They saw his authority. But they struggled to see his suffering. And now it's time. And by God's grace, she can see it. This seemingly throwaway phrase, she is anointing my body for burial. What? The time for sacrifice had come. Like Jesus had predicted this on three different occasions, and the disciples never got it. They missed it. But now, it's Wednesday. The cross is two days away on Friday. Two days before Jesus would willingly and lovingly give everything he had, pay the ultimate price, be broken himself, poured out on the cross in this ultimate act of sacrifice and love. And assuming Jesus doesn't bathe between this act and the cross, there's a very good chance that while he's on the cross, he can still smell the nard perfume that this woman poured over his head as a reminder of her love. 
as a reminder of why he's doing this. Like it's not a huge assumption that this unnamed woman knew and understood more than the disciples this prediction of death. He told the twelve, often there were more than twelve around. Certainly one of the twelve could have told her. Jesus had several women followers. And while the disciples didn't get his prediction of death, it would not be shocking if she did. Considering her gift in this moment, what she's doing, it would not be shocking if she knew what was coming. Not everything, not how everything would happen, not even the significance of everything. But she knew he was about to die in some kind of way. Like it's not a common thing to break open a jar of perfume and pour it on your rabbi's head. That didn't happen all the time. Her love for Jesus was motivated by what she knew was coming and what she had already experienced. His love for her. And them. And us. And when considering how to love and worship Jesus, you don't start with, I can. Look what I can do. I can do this and I, I can do that. And, 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 and I'm, I'm amazing in this way and I can do these things for Jesus. You don't start with that. You start with, I can't. I can't love him like he wants me to love him. I can't love him in proportion to how he has loved me. I can't love him enough or long enough to come anywhere close to loving him back for how much he has loved me. I will fail in 10 million ways every day at loving Jesus the way he deserves. You start with spiritual poverty, not riches. Not a checklist of how amazing you are at doing this. You admit what you can't do, but Jesus can and has and does and will do everything for you in love. To make your love of him, your worship of him, and your love of others possible. You can't. He's done it all. Everything necessary for you to love him back, even a little bit. Much less like this. When the writer of Hebrews was calling on those believers to continue in this race we've been all been created and called to run, the Spirit of God told him to write this in Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We run this race looking not here, looking there, looking to Jesus. That's how we run this race. Seeing Jesus, seeing his love, seeing his sacrifice, seeing his glory and pouring out himself for us. That's the only way you're going to run the race. It's the only way you're going to stay in the race. Look to Jesus. See him in his suffering. See him in his glory. See him in his love. See him in his sacrifice. See him seated at the right hand of God doing what? Interceding for us. They need help, Father. They need help. They're not as bad as they look right now. I covered that. Spirit, give them help. Empower that. Protect them. Help them. Interceding for us. 
It's only because Jesus loved you first that you can love him back. It's only because his spirit is alive in you that you can love and worship him. And if the spirit of God is speaking to you today, that you don't have Christ alive in you, this is not your reality. That either you're lost, separated from Christ, having never believed, or you're just religious. You're just a pile of good works. You're hoping that it's enough. Then know that today can be the day of your salvation. As you turn from sin, as you turn from your shame and your guilt and your fear, and you embrace and believe and trust in Jesus, whose love and sacrifice crush the power of sin in our lives, cleanse us from all the guilt that we carry with us, and His Spirit empowers our obedience so we don't have to be afraid. He calls us out of hiding. We don't have to hide in shame. We come alive in Christ as we embrace Christ, understanding that He embraces us first. And we become part of this family of people who give their lives to love and worship Jesus like this lady just did. And proclaim this story of this lady and demonstrate through our actions to our city, to our neighborhoods, to our workplaces, to our schools, to the nations that Jesus is worth this kind of sacrifice, this kind of love, this kind of devotion. He's worth it. He's done everything necessary so that we would love him in return wholeheartedly, unashamedly, sacrificially. And we get to proclaim this through our love, worship, and devotion to Him. Father, we are grateful for what You have done and what You make possible. We are grateful for many of us in this room. We've been changed by Jesus. But we do pray for those who maybe haven't experienced this. They don't know Christ in this way. They haven't been transformed by Christ on the inside. They've never come alive in Christ by repenting of sin and trusting in Jesus. God, we ask that today you would give them the gift of faith and salvation and repentance. That today they would come alive in Jesus and see him in his love and his beauty and his glory and his compassion as never before. Do this work in us for your glory. In our city and to the nations, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to respond in worship, however the Spirit is calling you to respond. And if you need to talk to somebody more about this relationship with Jesus, then please see somebody before you leave. When you're ready, after a time of reflection, you can come and grab a piece of bread and dip it in the cup and return to your seats and we'll share in this meal together if you're a repentant baptized follower of Jesus Christ, we invite you to share in this meal with us, and you can also give your tithes and offerings.